Welcome to the Message Podcast from Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can find us on most major podcast outlets. Visit cotnaz.org for more info. Our worship services stream weekly on Sundays at 9 a.m. on YouTube. You can also find our live stream at cotnaz.org. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. We have a campus near Harrisonburg at 1871 Boyers Road. We also have a campus in East Rockingham at 414 Southeast Side Highway in Elkton. In addition, our Spanish-speaking campus meets on Sundays at 11.45 a.m. at that same 1871 Boyers Road location. Check out our website, cotnas.org, for more info. Good morning, church family. A week ago today, about this time, we were getting ready to walk from a hotel to the arena across the street for the last session of the Nazarene Youth Conference, or NYC. It was hosted in Tampa Bay, Florida, and 19 people from our church, 16 students, three adults, joined over 10,000 students and leaders from the Church of the Nazarene across the United States and Canada region for a week of worship, of fun, and fellowship. I was just reading this morning that these students from the Church of Nazarene completed about 40,000 hours of community service that week to the city of Tampa Bay. Um, we're so grateful for, I'm sure this, for most of you, this isn't the first time you hear about this. We've been doing lots of fundraising for this event. And we're so grateful for those of you that prayed for our group and those that gave generously as well. So, um, throughout the sessions, we dove deep into the theme of overflow. And let me tell you, God is doing something new in the lives of our young people in our church. From our church, we can celebrate that students are growing deeper in their relationship with God as students recommitted their lives to Christ and as students are just starting to discover the call that God has on their lives. Um, the Nazarene Youth Conference is an event for rising ninth graders through graduated 12th graders, so for most, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And at this year's conference, it was announced that in 2026, we'll be going to Salt Lake City for the next NYC. So students, families, if you'll have a rising ninth grader through a graduated 12th grader in 2026, be on the lookout for more information about NYC that year. So this morning, we find ourselves in the middle of a series looking at the seven churches in Revelation. Although written by John through the revelation of Christ to the churches in Asia Minor, this letter still speaks to us today. Last week, we looked at the church at Ephesus, and we learned that the question isn't, what do you do? But the question is, whom do you love? As we looked at the church that had forgotten their first love. After the letter addresses this church in Ephesus, the letter turns its focus to Smyrna. And as we consider these next few verses, there's some context we need to know. Unlike the message to the church in Ephesus, um, as we saw last week, there is no complaint against the church in this city. Smyrna was about 40 miles north of Ephesus and is understood to have had a population of over 100,000 people during the first century. It served as a center of gathering both for political and economical purposes. It was known to be a beautiful city. And without a doubt, it held a significance in the empire of Rome. 
And although this letter brings no complaint to the church, it does bring an encouragement and a warning to the church. So this morning we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8 through 11. So if you have your copy of scripture, I'll invite you to pull it up. If you're using the U version, I'll invite you to search the events, Church of the Nazarene, Harrisonburg, or you can follow along on the screens. And this is what Revelation 2 says, starting in verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victors. Crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your faithfulness and for who you are. And so as we look at your word, God, speak to us in a fresh and new way this morning. Transform us from the inside out. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So immediately... We're reminded of the speaker of the letter, right? We're told it is the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. We're talking about Christ. The church here is celebrated because despite their suffering, because despite their poverty, they have endured. And for that, they are rich. They are rich in the eyes of the Lord and may be considered poor in the eyes of Rome. See, the poor in Rome were likely to live in the worst parts of the city, having little to no property, and overall, not very liked. Yet, these Christians in this city, having no wealth in the eyes of Rome, receive praises from Christ because they have pressed on in their faith, and because of that reality, they are rich. In the face of slander and oppression, they have been faithful to the one who always is. And in their faithfulness, they are promised life, eternal life, as their victor's crown. Crowns hold royal significance. Only granted to those who are worthy to wear them. And here we learn that worthy are those who are faithful to the very end. And as they are celebrated for being faithful a warning is given, almost a reminder of, hey, you've been faithful, but stay alert because hard days are coming. Suffering is coming. Persecution is coming. Be ready to continue to be faithful, the text seems to suggest, because worthy are those who are faithful to the very end. And as we learn in history, we know what happens to the early church. We know that persecution and death does come for Christians in Asia Minor, where the seven churches of Revelation are located. And then this segment of verses is concluded with this phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In these four verses, there is so much for us to consider and to unpack, but I'm intrigued by the theme of faithfulness of this message. 
What does it mean to be faithful? To be faithful means that we declare with our lives that Jesus is Lord. To be faithful means that we declare with our lives, not just our words, but with our lives, that Jesus is Lord. Growing up in the church, um, I had the privilege of being invested um, into by older people in the congregation. I think of someone, and for the purpose of the story, we're going to call him Brother M. Um, Brother M, um, I'm not sure if he ever knew this because I never really told him, um, but he left a huge impact on my life. He was a quiet older man, and he sat in the back of the sanctuary. I can picture it very clearly as a 10-year-old. I was 10 around around this memory, and I know exactly where he was sitting in the back of the sanctuary. His seat was never empty. I was confident that on any given Sunday I would walk through the door and Brother M would be at his seat in the back of the sanctuary ready to greet me with a smile on his face. And I remember watching him. Um, My parents made me sit up front with them. And so I remember up front looking back and seeing what Brother M was doing in the back of the sanctuary. And what I learned from Brother M is that he sang his heart out. He left it all during music. He served. He gave his all when he served as a greeter and as an usher. And he went out of his way to make sure people were seen. And this is how I remember Brother M from my earliest memories. And then there was one Sunday when I showed up to church that he wasn't there. That seat remained empty during the service, and I probably thought, oh, he'll come. But he didn't. Service ended, and Brother M was nowhere to be found, so I asked my parents, where is he? That's when I learned that he was having major health complications that didn't allow him to be present at church. And we weren't just sure what was going to happen. I was devastated. But as I reflect on his story, I've realized that he taught me something important about what it means to be faithful as I watched him live his life. Eventually, Brother M did come back and did take his seat again at the back of the sanctuary. This time, he had an oxygen tank with him, but yet he was the same. He still greeted me with a smile as I ran through the sanctuary doors. He still gave his awe as he continued to serve faithfully, and he still went out of his way to make sure people were seen. I can't imagine how difficult his life must have been at this point. I can't imagine how hard it must have been to smile to a 10-year-old that's running by through the pain. Or I can't imagine what it must have been like to simply accept that one can no longer do what one used to be able to. And still, through his life, he lived in such a way that reflected love and peace and joy, patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Despite it all, he lived a life that declared that Jesus is Lord, that God is in control of all things even if it didn't make sense. That God was working all things for his good. And almost 15 years later, Brother M 
is one of the most faithful individuals I've had the privilege of knowing in the church. For Christians, to be faithful to God means to proclaim that Jesus is Lord with our whole lives. And when Christians in Rome, when Christians in Asia Minor declared that Jesus is Lord, they were also making another statement. When they said Jesus is Lord, they were declaring that Caesar was not. And in Rome, the emperor was Lord. The emperor was celebrated and adored and worshipped. The expansion and the unity of Rome was based on this one thing that Rome held to be true, that Caesar is Lord. Questioning the Caesar as Lord or not proclaiming him as that caused social disruption within the empire. Within an empire that violently enforced the idea that Caesar is Lord. The Roman Empire operated by and represented the things of this world, power by military might, riches and wealth at the expense of others, oppression of different people groups, a mentality of thinking of oneself better than someone else, a community that marginalizes and humanizes others. Rome, in a sense, has this role in scripture of representing the powers of this world, this idea of glory and power for oneself. And to worship the emperor, the byproduct was to worship the things of this world. And in scripture, Rome isn't the only empire to play this role. And it most definitely isn't the first time that in scripture we encounter an emperor-like figure claiming the throne of God. As we look at the overarching story from Genesis to Revelation, we read about the subversive power of God that undermines the power of the empire, whether that empire is Egypt or Syria or Babylon, Persia, Rome, and even at some times Israel. In Exodus 1, we learned that as the Israelites found themselves enslaved in Egypt, the Egyptians had ordered that every male Hebrew newborn was to be killed. The Israelite midwives uh, disobeyed the Egyptian command and let the baby boys live. And scripture tells us that God increased the number of the Israelite people. From the story, we learn that where death abound, God brought life. In 2 Kings 5, we learn about Naaman, the commander of an army that is an enemy to Israel. He had leprosy. And in one of their raids against the Israelite people, he had captured a young Israelite girl. And upon learning that Naaman had leprosy, she told him about this prophet, Elisha, um, who could cure him. And so Naaman took the trip to Israel, to enemy land, to visit this prophet who this little girl told him could cure him. And he was given simple instructions. He was told, hey, dip yourself seven times in the Jordan and you will be healed. When we read the story in 2 Kings 5, Naaman thought this was a scam. It couldn't be that it was this simple to be healed. And yet it was. After being cured, he offered payment to the prophet, and the prophet refused. From this story, we learn that in a world 
that overcomplicates in a world that sells and falsely promises life through temporary things, God's gift of eternal life is simple and free. In Daniel 3, we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three friends who refused to bow down to an idol, the king of Babylon. And as a result, they get thrown into a fiery furnace. And to the king's surprise, when they looked into the furnace, there was no longer three people, but four. And one glowed. And the three were not consumed. From this story, we learn that in a world, in an empire, where it's easy to give in to the temptations of any and all idols, God's call is to be firmed in our faith, for God is faithful. And we learn that the king of Babylon, his power did not match to the power of God. In Amos 4, we learn about Israelites' continued unfaithfulness, for they have oppressed the poor and they have neglected God's call to be God's people in a world. So God's judgment is cast upon them. And the prophet delivers these resounding words, Israel, prepare to meet your God. And that's not in a good way for the Israelites' people at this point. And in Luke 1, we learn about a young girl named Mary, who has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, living in the oppression of Rome. She announces through a song, through a prophetic song, that God has brought down the rulers from their thrones, that God has lifted up the humble, that God has filled the hungry and has sent the rich away with nothing. In a world that ignores the hungry and rejects the poor, that brings about oppression of people's group, God's favor rests upon the lowly, those the world least expects. And in the Gospels, we read about Jesus, fully God and fully human, the holiest to walk among us, who taught us how to live holy lives, lives where you transformed from the inside out. Jesus was hung on a Roman cross, and for a few days, death had its victory. And yet the one who is always faithful, the one who is true to the promises, the one who has been and is and always will be, shows up with power through Christ's resurrection. In a world where death appears to have the victory, God has the final word. The power of the empire, the power of Satan is no match for the power of God and God's kingdom because the reality is that there is no empire that holds the crown of life. God's kingdom and God alone holds the crown of life and grants it to those who are faithful because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, we read about the power of God and the kingdom of God that is subversive to the empires of this world, the empires of the past that we read about in history, the empires of the present, and the empires that are yet to come. The kingdom of God operates on a different level because for the kingdom of God, Jesus is Lord and nothing else is. So be faithful to the one who always is. Because the kingdom of God and the reign of King Jesus is forever. While the empire and the things of this world will come 
and go. So what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? For Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, we must surrender. We must surrender our entire selves to Jesus. When Jesus is Lord, it means that Caesar is not. It means that the empire is not. It means that the things of this world are not. And it even means that I and that you, that we're not Lord. And although Christians in the United States aren't facing persecution because of our faith as the early Christians did, we are challenged with the same question that the church uh, receives in these verses. Will we be faithful? Will we surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Because when Jesus is Lord, we become more holy. That means that we are made more and more and more like Christ. That every day we are more like Christ. That I am more like Christ today than I was yesterday and yesterday than I was the day before. And tomorrow more than I am today. And we learn what it's like to be more like Christ as we look at the gospel stories. As we look at Jesus' life written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in these gospels we learn that in a world that rejects people because of their sin, whatever it may have been, we learn that Jesus sat and ate with sinners. That Jesus got in the dirt with them. May we do the same. In a world where people are hungry, Jesus fed them. May we do the same. In a world where injustices are committed, Jesus flips tables. May we do the same. In a world full of hatred and division, Jesus loved and loved well and unified. May we do the same. In a world where violence exists, Jesus advocates for peacemaking. May we do the same. In a world that proclaims Caesar as Lord through force, Jesus extends a loving invitation to experience eternal life. May we do the same. As I'm reminded of Brother M, in a world where everything seemed to be against him, where his health was not in his favor, I can imagine that he had every reason not to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And yet, despite it all, he chose to be faithful to the one who always is faithful, proclaiming not just with his words, but also with his life. And though, as those who proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we must live our lives in a way that is true to the life of Christ. That is true to the path of holiness as we surrender to Christ. God reveals to us the things in our lives that are not oriented towards the kingdom. And as we surrender, God transforms us from the inside out. We move in and we move toward the holiness that we are called. We become more and more and more like Christ as we walk in the way of love. In his lordship, we are justified and we are forgiven of our sins. We are made a new creation. We are adopted into the family of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And when that happens, it means that the things of this world no longer have power over us. For it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives through us. That means that we bring our dreams and our desires for our lives, not just our problems, to the feet of Jesus. We bring all who we are, all who we were, and all who we want to be to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, where our minds are shaped and molded with the imagination of the kingdom of God, of heaven filling the earth. Later in Revelation chapter 21, John points towards what's to come. And he writes this in the first five verses of chapter 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The things of the empire have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The encouragement and the warning to the church was to be faithful, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, despite what's to come, because God will meet them in their faithfulness. And so this text challenges with this question, who is my Lord? Who is my Lord? That is a challenging question because I must admit that there are too many moments in my life where I allow the other things, some good things, to become the Lord of my life. And so ask the question, are there moments in our lives that we have been more faithful to other things? Are there moments in our lives where we have been more faithful to our jobs or our vocations or our finances or our sports or our preferred news channels or political party or individuals or our favorite celebrities or artists than we have been to Jesus? Are there times in our lives that we run to other things first? Who is our Lord? That's the question and the challenge for us this morning. Will you be faithful to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I'm going to invite you to stand. Because maybe you're here this morning and your heart is in full surrender to the Lordship of Christ and we celebrate that. Maybe you're here this morning at one point in your life that was true for you, but you have allowed other things to take that throne. Or maybe you're here this morning, you've never made that proclamation that Jesus is Lord. The invitation for us today is to consider who is our Lord. So during this next song, I'm going to invite you, let's ask ourselves this question. Who is my Lord? Because when we are faithful to God, God will meet us there and place the, on us the victorious crown of life. May we be faithful to the one who always is. May we demonstrate with our whole selves that Jesus is Lord.
Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. When you're done listening today, please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.